Uh, it is very much an honor for me to be able to present at this conference now for the third time. Uh, the previous two times got a lot of great feedback and criticism that I think improved those papers significantly, and hopefully I expect the same thing will be true here. I'd also like to thank Richard in advance for what I know will be his very thoughtful comments. Uh, and last but not least, the President of the United States for making this subject great again. Uh, for the record, my interest in this issue predates my thinking that even he was even likely to win the presidency, but obviously the issue is even more topical today uh, than it perhaps it used to be. Uh, so uh, my basic theory in this paper is pretty simple. For a long time, for over 100 years, everybody or almost everybody has assumed that the federal government has this general power over immigration. And my view is that this is an emperor that's walking around naked, or at least much more scantily clad than we've been led to believe. And that when you look at the justifications offered for uh, this general power over immigration, uh, they turn out to be, at the very least, much weaker and more problematic than uh, people tend to think. There is a separate question that I don't address in this paper of what should we do about these bad precedents in this area. If they are, in fact, bad precedents, in my view, we should cut back on them at least somewhat. And I uh, outlined some partial steps to do it out at least. But I recognize there's broader issues here about you know, what we do about bad precedent generally. Uh, and I don't want to fully take on those questions in this paper. So to get on to the question of where if anywhere, could there be this general power over immigration in the Constitution? I'll first look to perhaps the part of the Constitution that most obviously deals with immigration, the naturalization clause. Uh, and I think the obvious point to be made here is that a power over naturalization is not the same thing as a power over immigration. You can naturalize people who are not immigrants. And conversely, there can be people who are, are immigrants but are denied naturalization. This is well understood today. And it was actually well understood by the founders as well, and I discussed some of the relevant evidence on this. Uh, today, uh, perhaps from a textualist point of view at least, we might think the most obvious place to look for a power over immigration is the Foreign Commerce Clause. And indeed, under the broad modern interpretation of commerce, probably almost all immigration could be swept in because either it would be economic activity or it would be non-economic activity that affects commerce in some substantial way. However, under the dominant understanding of commerce in the 18th, even in most of the 19th and early 20th centuries, the power to regulate commerce was a power to regulate trade and goods or services or articles of commerce, the common phrase used in the founding era. And people other than slaves, an important exception I'll get to in a moment, uh, but people other and slaves were not seen as articles of commerce. Uh, and this is a pretty widely held view. Uh, if uh, it was the case that the power to over foreign commerce included a power over migration. That would mean that the power over interstate commerce would include a power to forbid Americans to migrate from one state to another. To my knowledge, nobody in the 18th or early 19th century and the like thought that this was the case. And it would have been pretty radical if it was thought. One would expect that the anti-federalists and others would have raised this as a criticism of the Constitution. But uh, it wasn't thought that such a power existed. Now, even if a power over immigration is not separately enumerated, maybe it could be brought in through a combination of one of the enumerated powers or one of the other enumerated powers plus the necessary and proper clause. I think it's pretty obvious that restricting immigration might be necessary in the broad sense of necessary that was adopted in McCulloch and defended by Alexander Hamilton previously in the sense of useful or convenient, restricting 
migration could be a useful or convenient way of affecting commerce of various kinds, for example. However, even if it's necessary, I would argue that it wasn't proper under the original meaning uh, as people like Will Bod and others have enunciated. The original meaning of proper was at the very least that the power in question that was added through a Nesserine proper clause had to be an incidental power, incidental to one of the other enumerated powers, not a great and independent power. Now, there is some slippage here. How do we know what's a great and independent power? But the power to restrict migration generally, I think, pretty clearly falls on the great and independent side of the line. If anything does, it's a vast, very important power. Uh, and so this would definitely be a case of pinning a dog on a tail, not pinning a tail on the dog if it were allowed in uh, by this means. Now, some people, both in the 1790s and more recently, have said, well, the migration or importation clause, uh, that implies a general power over immigration. What the migration or importation clause says is that Congress is not allowed to forbid the migration or importation of such, state of such persons as states want to admit until the year 1808. So if this is limitation on powers to make sense, there must be some general power that it's limiting some general power over importation and over migration uh, as well. Uh, I think I would give a twofold answer to this one originalist, one partly originalist and textualist. The originalist answer is that as James Madison and others said at the time, and also John Jay, migration or importation of persons was in fact thought of as a euphemism for slavery. They used the euphemism because as they said, they were embarrassed to actually use the word slavery. John Jay was very forthcoming in his discussion of this. I quote him in the paper, but you might say still you don't want to interpret this in a way to make the word migration superfluous, because importation clearly covers slaves, so why include migration as well? Uh, if you don't want to make it superfluous, and as I expound elsewhere in the paper, I'm certainly against superfluity myself. Uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that the word migration implies a general power over migration. Rather, it could imply a power over migration in a sense of voluntary movement. In cases where the voluntary movement is of people who, like slaves, were considered articles of commerce, and there was, in fact, a large category of relevant people of that type uh, in the 1790s and a bit later as well, namely indentured servants, as Mary Mary Sarah Builder shows in an excellent paper, uh, indentured servants like slaves were in fact considered articles of commerce, so, but they were migrants rather than imports because they moved voluntarily in the first instance at least rather than through, purely through coercion. Uh, calling people articles of commerce is sort of a cruel and callous way to refer to them, but it was the way that people talked at the time, both ordinary people and certainly legal uh, scholars and theorists. Uh, all of the points that I just made, most of them at least, are not actually new to me at all. Uh, this is a radical view that I'm advancing in terms of the modern literature on the subject, but it's the view held by such radicals as James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Albert Gallatin, most of the Republican Party in the 1790s, as expressed in their uh, arguments in the debates over the Alien and Sedition Acts, and even many Federalists who defended the Alien Act, uh, they didn't do so on the basis of a general federal power uh, over immigration. Uh, so in, in, in much of what I'm doing here is recovering an old orthodoxy rather than introducing a new radical view, though as it turns out, the new radical view uh, is uh, the old orthodoxy is now radical. Finally, I'd like to briefly talk about the grounds on which the Supreme Court ultimately accepted a general power over immigration 
1889 in the Chinese exclusion case, they said, yeah, maybe this can't be found enumerated anywhere specifically, but it's got to be there somewhere because it's an inherent power that every sovereign nation has to have. Uh, and to, make, uh, to briefly summarize, I have two responses to this. Uh, one is that there's a lot of other powers that one might think are even more fundamental to a nation, such as the power to wage war uh, and others uh, that are specifically enumerated. So we can't assume that anything that must considered inherent uh, didn't have to be enumerated because it just must somehow be there. Second, it can't really be the case that this is inherent and essential because the federal government got through the first 100 years of its history without this power. They did enact the Alien Act, but under the actually controversial provision of the Alien Act, nobody was actually deported, and the Alien Act was allowed to expire in a few years because it was widely considered to be unconstitutional. Uh, so if a nation can live for 100 years without this, uh, despite the, Donald Trump saying otherwise, it seems like uh, it's not an inherent power that's essential to the very existence of a nation. It might be useful, might be desirable. That's a different issue. But it's not absolutely essential from a structural point of view, and we can't infer that it must be there uh, textually either. Uh, in the paper, I also deal with questions, sort of funkier and more original arguments for uh, a general power over immigration, such as inherent executive power, advanced by Michael Ramsey, who is here, and also claims that this falls under the power to define and punish violation of the law of nation. They don't have time to get into this now, but I'm happy to talk about it in questions. Finally, the paper also deals in less extensive form with the original meaning or the original scope of state power in this area, and it deals with at least one type of non-original uh, theory of interpretation and how it should be cashed out. Uh, I think the bottom line here is that in this paper, my goal is both radical and modest, radical in the sense that I want to introduce a perspective that's radically different from modern conventional wisdom, modest in the sense that I'm not claiming the Supreme Court should fully adopt this perspective tomorrow. My goal is rather to take this argument from off the wall and move it on the wall uh, in the terminology popularized by Jack Balkett. Uh, that after this, I think hopefully uh, it will be tougher to say that it's simply obvious that uh, the federal government has this power and all right-thinking people agree that it does. Thank you. <laughs>